Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs, small business owners, and local business owners. We have marketing and business coaches. We have folks who help others build their businesses. And on the other side of that coin, we have the do-it-yourselfers who just love to have their own hands on the levers as they market and grow their business. If you are any of the above, please take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, check us out on iTunes. Just do a search for Business Creators Radio Show. Every five-star rating is greatly appreciated and helps us serve more business creators just like you. Now, today, we have a very interesting topic. And... In some ways, this is a little bit outside what we normally cover on Business Creators Radio Show. And at the same time, and on the same coin, this is something that I think is so critical for our listeners that the moment this came across my desk and I had the opportunity to bring this topic and this guest on board, I jumped on it because opportunities like this I don't think come along very often. And what we're going to be talking about is the idea of the extreme CEO, leadership wisdom from an interim CEO. So what we're going to be doing here is we're going to be speaking with Richard Lindenmuth, who is a successful interim CEO responsible for some of the most successful and fast business turnarounds in recent history. And just to give you sort of like the big idea of what's going on here and why this is so important, interim CEOs are like the Navy SEALs of the C-suite. Their unique mindset and knowledge base work in any organization. But how do they parachute in? assume leadership of a flailing organization and steer it back to profitability in record time, that's what we have Richard Lindenmuth for. Uh, he's, in fact, a seasoned interim CEO who has helmed some major turnarounds, and he shares his secrets and strategies with you today. The reason I bring this up is because we do have some people who are business creators who function as the interim CEO. We have one listener who tunes in almost every week who functions as a CFO, a chief financial officer who goes into struggling organizations and saves them from bankruptcy. So this is not exactly new. In fact, a lot of our high-level consultants who listen to Business Creators Radio Show perform functions not too dissimilar from this. And as a business creator, you do this for your client at a certain level. Even if you're a virtual assistant, even if you're a web designer, you're doing something going into that organization as a contractor on an interim basis even if it's for three years, it's still interim, where you're helping them move the needle and win at the game of business and marketing in a way that could not happen without you and in a way where you can easily do it for other clients. So, Richard, welcome aboard. Thank you very much, Adam. I'm very happy to be here. And I'm happy to have you here. Uh, what I'd like to do, first of all, before we get into the content, is if you could just share with us a little bit uh, where we come to the intersection of your brilliance and passion, and otherwise, or a little bit about your story and what's brought you to where you are today. Well, okay. <clears throat> I started out in uh, uh, business and ranching as a, as a young fellow, and then went to the Wharton Graduate School. I uh, got a good degree in international finance, and I became the uh, the troubleshooter, as it were, for the Singer Sewing Machine Company around the world. Wow. In other words, I went into their problem companies in Morocco, Nigeria, Hong Kong, uh, Thailand, Indonesia, Turkey, wherever it was, and 
in, in those days, it was kind of fun and uh, forgiving in the sense that it took sometimes as much as two weeks to get an international phone call. So if I really messed up, it took people at least two weeks to figure <laughs> out. And by that, by that time, I could fix it. Right. And so I learned a great deal in other countries in basic manufacturing and uh, uh, lots of things, retail, uh, design engineering. And it, it was fun. It was very good background. And then since then, I've run large companies like ITT's telecom business, uh, as well as modest and uh, smaller uh, companies as well. Today, I am involved in uh, Stylotech, which is a uh, food packaging company in Delano, California. We package uh, uh, grape produce, fresh grapes, for shipment around the world. Great. Fantastic. Now, there's a question we ask everybody who appears on the Business Creators Radio Show and our regular listeners who tune in every week and sort of hear the drumbeat in the background. And here we go. Here in the Business Creators Radio Show, we provide the tools, techniques, and strategies to help entrepreneurs quickly grow their businesses. A lot of our listeners tell me they have everything they need to implement anything that anybody comes on our show and says they need to do except for time and money. Now, this is a question we ask everybody who appears on Business Creators Radio Show, as I said. And what I like is not only the variety of different answers, but also the variety of ways the question is interpreted. And we have had quite a range. So, Richard, how do time and money impact what you're going to share with us today? Well, time and money, no matter what, are the uh, most scarce resources. Uh, right. But it's, it's very interesting because perception, you can be very active and doing things, but they may not be moving you forward. So that doesn't conserve time, and it takes money. So a lot of times when people like myself parachute into an organization, we've seen these things before. In fact, uh, you'll appreciate that many business owners and my family have, uh, have created businesses. Uh, people think they're very high-risk takers, whereas in my experience, entrepreneurs and business starters are so sure they are right that they don't see the risk. And so there's a good balance in, in terms of time and money, bringing somebody in when you do have some issues and getting that extra perception, extra experience quickly in a timely way and not spend too much money uh, waiting. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard somewhere that the average human being uses less than 10% of their brain <laughs> yeah, have you heard that? I mean, it's like most of what's in our brains is actually underutilized mush. Well, you know, we tend to be focused and uh, we tend to do the same things that we have consistently been successful in around our life. That's a little bit why, you know, I thought I, I used the term thinking outside the box. All of us have a box and we live inside that. And right. uh, it, it is tough to break out of that uh, routine of things doing things in the way that we've always done them because that's the way we've been successful. And when technology changes, good or bad, a market changes, uh, opportunities show up to grow internationally or things that are, we're not used to, uh, we can spend an awful lot of time and money analyzing and thinking and uh, trying to figure out what we should do and what have you. And again, it's much better to have somebody with experience just jump in and help. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'll just say for the record here, and our listeners know, I have cats, so 
when the cats think inside the box, that's usually a good thing. But otherwise, that kind of thinking really doesn't work when it comes to business creation. Uh, Richard, <laughs> what I love about having guests about you is, especially people with your background, is folks like you come to us with a lot of stories. And I love the kind of learning where we learn through anecdotes and we learn through case studies. In fact, when I was uh, going for my MBA at Duquesne University all those years ago, um, although it was the most difficult course I've ever taken, one of the few courses I actually have memories of was a course on business problems uh, that was taught by a gentleman named Thomas Murren, who was involved with U.S. Steel and was an Undersecretary of Commerce. And we spent a lot of time going over Harvard Business School case studies which were great. So I see this as an opportunity to learn from the master. So first of all, tell us, you were involved with a dying California farming industry company in the middle of a drought. California always seems to be in the middle of a drought, so this is probably going to be a perennial topic. So how did you turn that farming company around in the middle of a drought? Well, it was not easy. I mean, the company was actually had, had stopped manufacturing. And uh, they had been wasting 100,000 gallons of water per day in a drought. Wow. Uh, the, the, the beginnings of that, it, it, it wasn't something that they were doing uh, knowledgeably. I mean, the uh, state decided that the access to uh, snow melt and rainwater that came within 30 yards of their front door in a canal would no longer be permissible for the company to to draw from that water and put the water back into that uh, canal after it went through to cool the machines and what have you. So it was forced on them to uh, have to use wells. Right. So the well water didn't have the same attributes, the same minerals and what have you. So therefore uh, much of the water that came in through the boilers and what have you would be rejected and not, in fact, like 35% of it would be rejected and go right back out. And that would mean they would be starting and stopping. Their costs went way up, the uh, electricity use, energy use, and everything else. And so they started losing a considerable amount of money, uh, and their production was on again off again. Their quality control dropped down. And so it was really a dilemma, not something that they had ever faced before, initiated by having to change from uh, rainwater effectively to well water. Um, You know, we're all kind of captive of our experience. And fortunately, I grew up in the farming and ranching area in agriculture where water is uh, is gold. And I remembered that in some cases, uh, for emergencies, special equipment could be on a flatbed trailer brought in quickly and plugged into whatever irrigation or other system you might have. And so I called around quickly, found somebody in Tennessee. Within 10 days, we had a flatbed trailer out here with large uh, pieces of equipment. And so we were able to put a Band-Aid on it relatively quickly. And then over time, um, you know, put the right kind of healing together to, to design the system. And today we actually recycle 50,000 gallons of water uh, per week. So, you know, it has a very, very good story. The other good side of it is that in order to fix all these things, they grew their uh, employment by 
uh, over 60%. And so, you know, our employment today is actually 70% lower than it was before, but with good quality workers, everybody has a steady job. Nobody's fearful about, particularly in this economy, about not paying the bills or whatever. Uh, and so we're, we're now a team, people, almost a family organization, although we are just under uh, uh, 230 people. Okay, that's, that's really good. And uh, now, let's say that there's a company that's facing upheaval and, or something, a company facing something that was a little bit outside their planning, a little beyond their control. Like, for instance, you have all the water that's coming down the mountain from the snow melting, melting from the mountaintops, and literally within 30 feet of their front door, they're not allowed to tap that water stream anymore. I mean, that can be a really big deal for farming. I mean, we hear stories in the news of uh, avocado farms in California that are getting into a lot of trouble because they're having a hard time finding the water because avocado trees are well known for needing a lot of water. Uh, so there can be many sources of upheaval. So why should boards facing C-suite upheaval turn to interim CEOs such as yourself? Uh, there are a number of reasons. First off, we can arrive on uh, Monday morning at 11 o'clock before noon and be ready to work. Uh, our experience is that the company itself has deep resources with very good knowledge about how to run their current business. Uh, without it, I mean, the lack of human capital required to generate a profit, uh, they wouldn't do very well. So the company, at some point, has all these deep resources. They know how to farm. They know how to make a toaster. They know how to make whatever the widget is that they are, are manufacturing. But when all of a sudden they're faced with an outside problem, you know, it's not the CEO. I mean, sometimes uh, uh, investors and others think the CEO is the easiest guy to get rid of, so get rid of him and get a new one. Well, you know, it, it, without that kind of experience, uh, it's not really his or her fault. Sometimes as an interim CEO, we can come in as a coach or mentor uh, for a couple of weeks working directly for the board, not for the CEO, right. and bring, bring things around and coach and bring things back to a, a point where uh, you know, everything is sort of like it was before and the CEO can do very well. After all, he has the relationships with customers, vendors, and other people that somebody jumping in and out may not have. Right. And, and, and what are some other ways that an interim CEO is different from another type of C-suite executive? I mean, you covered some of the points already that they bring a different level of experience in, and they can walk in on Monday morning and by 11 o'clock a.m. be fully set in and ready to go to work. Yes, it's, it's not, uh, you know, obviously somebody new who's coming in, there's quite a bit of fear uh, and uncertainty for the uh, uh, people who are there. And what I tell people is first, they have to get out and meet people as quickly as they can to show that they're human and uh, they don't tell people what to do. This is not uh, something where you come in and bang on the table and say, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to charge that hill or whatever the uh, uh, right anecdote might be. Right. Uh, I recommend you, you go around and you, you listen. And because again, the people who've been working there for years, They've been watching the inventory build up. They've been watching the shipments slack off. They've been watching the machines get older. They know everything that, you know, 80% of, of the knowledge that you need to fix the problems is sitting there in front of you. But if you come in and bang on the table, 
and they are saying, oh, this guy's an idiot. Uh, they're going to wait you out. You won't have any information. And the, the other side of that is if you've been there for years, these changes have hit. You're used to doing things the same way every day. And it's very hard when I go into an organization that has, for example, vice presidents, I usually say to them, you're the elder counsel. Uh, you've reached a place in the, your career through experience, hard work, and everything else, uh, but you've reached a place where you no longer want your judgment questioned. So I'm not going to ask you what you think should be done. I'm going to start talking to the other people. However, when I come up with their ideas, their thoughts, and what have you, we as the elder counsel group will sit together and talk about them and come up with what we think should be the solutions or the responses to these problems. And, uh, you know, if you wait for the perfect answer, of course, it could be several months and you could lose an awful lot of money and time. Right. However, my experience is that there are some things that can be done right away, small things, but directionally. And they, again, they show that you listen. They show that you're human. They show that uh, you're willing to take that uh, uh, decision and set that direction. And usually those small things, if they need to be modified left or right a little bit, that's fine. But it's like anything else. If you're moving in a direction, you want to fall forward, not backwards. So you, you, you are careful that you can uh, select the right quick decisions, small, not going to bet the company on your first decision. And you know what I really like about this, and for everybody listening, make sure you caught what Richard just said if you're listening live, and make sure that you subscribe to the iTunes feed and listen to this again on iTunes. Because he just gave you right there a prescription for how to become effective and how to be successful when you move into an organization where others have been there for a long time. What I see happen way too often with interim-type executives or uh, firefighter-type executives, and even sometimes with as simple as virtual assistants and web designers who really come in just to fulfill a specific role, is they immediately slam into a lot of resistance because... Uh, they can be perceived very quickly as uh, somebody who's coming in to take away what somebody else has. For instance, let's say that you're a new, let's say you're a new coach coming into an organization, and they have their marketing person, their VA, their web designer, and everything there already, and you're going to start coaching this organization, right? It's very quick. It's very easy for them to say, "Who the hell do you think you are? You've been here for 18 and a half seconds." I've been here for five years, so why don't you just sit down and listen to me for a while? Maybe I'll, te I'll tell you how it really goes. Uh, so by uh, taking the elder counsel, counsel approach and what Richard just shared with us, it shows you a way to uh, gain traction in the organization without others feeling threatened, which is very critical because when you have resistance, all that does is build friction. Uh, what are some other things that you've achieved over the years in terms of and, and what you have described here sounds a lot like creating influence without authority we don't have the power to bang on the desk and say we're going to charge the hill but you're brought in to get things done but you don't necessarily have the power on paper to do so so, so what, what are some of the other tactics that have worked for you well most of the, first most of the time we do have the uh, the power on uh, on paper because it's very hard oh. to come in and make changes significant changes without having the authority. However, even with that authority, if you think you can just bang on the table and tell everybody what they're going to do, they haven't effectively recognized your authority and you don't therefore have it. And so it's the old saying, if you have to say I'm the boss, you're not. Right. Uh, 
And I look at the uh, listening process, what I call active listening, going in and asking these questions, but then repeating back to the people what you think you heard in your words. And if you do that several times, you are, you will be on the same page as, as what people are talking about. And then what it's very uh, interesting, but my experience is that throughout the organization, many people share the same uh, opinions and thoughts and what should be done and what have you, but they may not be able to articulate them like a graduate student or a financial guy or whatever. So in this active listening of repeating back and, and forth, uh, pretty soon you can get these people together and you've got people who are saying, my gosh, he, this person's listening and we're all talking the same thing. I'm part of the solution going forward because almost every individual will say at some point, kind of what's in it for me? I could lose my job. You know, how am I going, what's going to happen to me when I go forward? As soon as they feel like they're part of the solution going forward, let me tell you, the enthusiasm is a little bit like the cartoon where the little light bulbs go popping in the right. room and on top of people's heads and see these and say, oh, my gosh, we can do this. And, it, and it's exciting. Then the, then the authority, if you will, is to be able to, to uh, set the priorities and provide the resources and support for the people who uh, need to be successful and make it successful. So it, it's exciting. And there, I've never been smart enough to have all the answers. Uh, my children point that out very frequently. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it's no different in any environment. Uh, if you're the guy banging on the desk, you have to have the perfect answer. And the, the answers are sitting there in front of you. This is a team effort. Yeah. You know, as you were as you were telling me that, and first of all, thank you for clarifying, because I, I I I guess I need a little more, more more information on that. Is when the interim CEO comes in, they actually do have a lot of on paper authority. The challenge is the people who have already been in the organization for a long time, and having them approach it not from a position of fear, like oh this person's going to come in, we've been screwing up, he's going to take our jobs away, to involving them in in the solution. I was just reminded that. When I was in college, I worked for five years at a fast food joint in the summers and on vacations and such. And that's how I came up with my Thursday night money and uh, the money to put the system in my Camaro and all that. And it was just, it was, it was, it's funny, but it was also very sad. The store that I worked at was an officially designated training store, which means assistant managers in training were trained at our store and our general manager was certified as a training store manager. And it was, as I said, it was funny, but it was also very sad. These assistant managers holding up their role books, trying to give those of us who had been in the organization for three and four years instructions on how to do our jobs. Like, really, did you really need to explain that one? Uh, and you're wrong besides, but that's okay. And, what unfortunately happened in too many of those situations is it very quickly turned to you, listen, I'm the boss. You'll do as I say. And, and the people around are thinking, really? You're a trainee. You've been here for two and a half minutes. We've been here for five years. We actually know how this works. So why don't you go back in the office and smoke a cigarette? And you don't want that when you're coming into an organization looking to make change. So what I'd like to do now, Richard, is I'd like to shift gears a little bit. And uh, you have a piece out called Strategic Empathy, Seven Leadership Tips from an Interim CEO. So could you tell us more about this strategic empathy concept? 
Paul, you, you have to be uh, concerned about people. I mean, that's what it really is about. And, and uh, there are things that you can do. Uh, for example, if I go into an organization and I know, for example, in, in Alabama, I had uh, several thousand employees and a large manufacturing operation and some major changes in the marketplace. It was clear that I was going to have to eliminate some jobs. Well, that's fine. I can see the, the future and what we have to do and what have it. But, you know, my first comment to the uh, individuals when they were coming up with the names of people and the areas that could be replaced or were eliminated was that there will be no elimination of particularly mothers who have children who are uh, trying to use or two jobs to support their family. They will not be eliminated. I don't, I don't care. The social damage that you do in a community is, uh, is terrible. You can do your strategy, your long-term thinking, and not be harmful to, to those people. So, you know, when those kinds of messages get across, the people understand, well, it's not me or them. Or the, this is a team effort, and it, it is, very, uh, uh, is very different when you start thinking about this is a team, this is a company, it's a living, breathing organization. We're not out here just cutting people in heads and not thinking about, uh, you know, uh, all of the aspects of, of an organization. It's a, it's a breathing thing. Uh, the other thing that is I try to get those kinds of the negative uh, things done as quickly as I possibly can. And the second part is all at once. In other words, I don't want to have, we'll do something negative this week, and then uh, we'll do something negative next week, and then third week. It's like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Everybody's fearful. They don't do anything. When you can say, all right, we've done it. This is it. We're, we're ready to move forward. Uh, doesn't mean that there won't be some changes or other things, but the negative stuff of, of heads or uh, jobs eliminated or expenses cut or uh, whatever those things are. The second part uh, is as you move forward, these people who come up with the ideas and say, gosh, if we did this, you know, uh, it would probably save us money or time or whatever it is. If you recognize and reward that participation quickly, it, it really shows people that uh, you are listening and, it, and it's fun. I mean, there are times, I mean, and I'm not talking about a huge bonus or something like that. Sometimes it's just recognition. I've given people certificates for, um, you know, excellent uh, certificate of excellence for the job that they were doing right. uh, occasionally. Uh, sometimes it is a bonus or a commission. Sometimes in the case of, of the current company here, we had five people out in the, on the factory floor that just were clearly making a difference. And so we gave them $15 cards for Walmart. Uh, that's not a huge expense for a company, but it's recognition and $15 is $15. So, um, it's and it makes it fun. Everybody's looking. Wow, wow! Look at that. They saw him doing that, and he got a fifteen-dollar Walmart card. Gosh! So it it can be fun. But and then the other part of it is share your vision. Don't be sitting in your room saying this is what we're going to do, and I've got it all on paper and on a wall chart and stuff like that. Go out and talk about it so everybody knows where where you're going, what you're doing, what they're do, going to be doing with you. Ask for their opinions again. Uh, and this, this is, management is not a, uh, you know, you were talking about, uh, I'm the boss. 
I look at people who call meetings as just to show you that I'm the boss because I can call a meeting. Meetings are useless unless it's a three-minute three minute meeting just saying, what did you do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? Do I have any resources that you need to be successful? That's a good meeting. Okay. Uh, so, you know, just if you have to say you're the boss, you're not. You're not in charge. That is an interesting segue that I'd like to get into for just a moment because you have just pushed one of my buttons, and I want to congratulate you for doing so. When you said meetings are useless. Now, I get some pushback on that, but I'm the first to tell you that, uh, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I thought, wow, I'm so glad I attended that meeting. I've been I've been, I've been involved in I've been involved in startups uh, a few different startups that unfortunately didn't get very far and the ones that didn't get very far uh, I I know there were other factors and in, in two of the three cases uh, some expected funding didn't come through and people just gave up and went on to other things uh, but if you want to know what was like the death of them it's like we're having all these constant meetings it's meeting 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 constantly scheduling meetings meetings every week committee meetings subcommittee meetings team meetings, group meetings, um, impromptu five-minute Skype meetings, 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 meetings. And I was that guy who would stand up at the meeting and say, you know, we've been talking about this same topic for eight and a half months now, and it just keeps showing up as an agenda item. So I move that we either do this or decide we're not doing it, or we stop or we just stop this whole venture because this isn't going anywhere. And this was actually over, over, over a very small item, but it's like we were meeting things to death. Uh, There was another case where I was brought in on a project uh, as part of a marketing launch, and it became clear pretty quickly that there was going to be a big meeting culture. They're like, we're going to have three times a week team meetings. You need to book three hours a week for meetings. And I I went to the client very quickly, and I said, look, you can count me out on these meetings. Um, Just, you know, whatever people need from me, just you know, let me know. Uh, if you want to get to know me, do business with me, and that's how you'll get to know me. Because uh, to me, it just didn't seem like much of a use of time. So if you find yourself, Richard, in a meeting culture, how do you break that? Well, it's not easy. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I went to a relatively large company, uh, and the uh, there was there were at least one or two meetings a week where they were all hands uh, in the uh, uh, senior management level, let's say. Right. And then usually usually five or six people from different parts of the organization that would be presenting whatever they, they were presenting about. Uh, and I, I really just never saw anything more than a waste of time. Now, as a boss, I, I can go in there and say, all right, no more meetings. Well, you know, they can prove you wrong, too. There are communications is important. Right. But I'll give you an example in this, this one. I mean, the donuts and the sandwiches and the uh, coffee and the, everything that was catered from the outside for these meetings. Most of the management didn't touch it, but the secretaries and the administrative help all had a free lunch. Right. Uh, I basically, I basically cut that out. It was twenty thousand dollars a month. Oh my gosh! Besides wasting time and the money for the people that are there in the meeting, then spending twenty thousand dollars a month on donuts and sandwiches. I mean, they're the, the meeting culture is a terrible, terrible thing. Now, communications, making sure everybody is on the same page, talking with two or three people for five minutes about very specific things and sharing their ideas, getting back together with them in the hallway or on the shop floor for two minutes. Those are good meetings. 
Uh, and you know, there's always a board of directors meeting and other things. But even there, I don't I don't accept a board of director who comes in and uh, the evening before has a nice dinner and then reads the financials for the first time in the morning. Excuse me. You'd be prepared so it's a short and crisp meeting and we can get out. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, a few several years ago, I was the president of a local networking organization, and I'd already been on the board for three years before I made it to the presidency, and every month we had board meetings, which were supposed to be 90 minutes, but the, the, the shortest one during all my time on the board was ever two and a half hours, and what it came down to was people would spend most of the meeting just reading off all the stuff that their department was doing or, or engaging in, you know, coming up with all these things to talk about. Talk, 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 talk. So when I became president, I decided I didn't want to sit around in meetings, but we we're going to have to have our board meeting every month anyway. And I thought that the board meeting was very good because we're all busy professionals. We all had businesses. We all had jobs. And it was good for us to get together because this is a volunteer organization and it helped to focus our energies. So, what I had everybody do before the meeting, it was a board of directors with eight people on it, is within 48 hours before the meeting, you had to submit three things to the entire board of directors via email. Number one, what you're working on. Number two, where you need support. And number three, your ideas for helping the organization. It didn't have to be a term paper. It didn't have to be an executive summary. It could be a couple bullet points in an email, as long as it got the point across. And uh, so we had our first meeting, four out of the eight people submitted their summaries. And so I went around, I went around the room and I said, uh, okay, so, uh, okay, so you, you had your summary. So I see you want to talk about this. So let's talk about that. You know, we went through each one where they didn't have to read it off. It was assumed they had already been read and people were prepared with their questions. And we went to number two, number three, number four. So now we're 45 minutes into this 90 minute meeting. And I said, all right, it's been a great meeting. Thank you very much. And so then you have three other directors saying, hey, what about me? And I said, well, you didn't submit a report. I guess you had nothing to contribute. <laughs> uh, they submitted their summaries from that point forward, although I found out later that I was compared to every tw 20th century totalitarian dictator you'll read of in the encyclopedia because I asked them to submit a summary in advance. And the funny thing was the people who did the complaining were the ones that just loved the talk. Of course. Yeah. So what are thought? Go ahead. I, I just the uh, I took over a public company that was about to be delisted from the stock exchange. The stock had gone from a little bit over five dollars down to seventy five cents, and the stock exchange had actually given them a warning. Uh, they were they were losing money, and uh, you know I I told the people that I was going to arrive. By airplane, it would, my airplane would not get there until Monday at noontime. Right. I arrived on Sunday, and I was there at five o'clock in the morning when the shift changed. The very first executive to come in was the HR uh, person, and she came in at uh, at ten thirty. The manufacturing person didn't could not come on until noon. I had said we would have a one o'clock in the afternoon meeting. I took their cell phones away, put them in a conference room, told them no no contacting anybody else, and then I told them that. Uh, you know, okay, every day from this point until we are making money, we are going to have our meeting to tell us, and, and it's limited to five minutes per person. We're going to have it, and it's going to be five minutes of what did I do accomplish yesterday, 
what am I going to accomplish today? And what resources do I need from anybody around the table? That's it, period. Right. And we held the meeting at 6 o'clock in the morning. Wow. So that, you know, so we were not wasting time or anything else. And just as a funny anecdote, in, uh, uh, right around Christmas, we had turned the company around. The company's stock was back up to, I think, $3 at, at that time. Right. We, uh, uh, a couple of the spouses after a cocktail came over and, and said to me, said, Mr. Lindemuth, this is the earliest our husbands had ever been up in their life. That's hilarious. So it, it was fun. And believe me, the meetings at that time of the morning, they were five minutes. That's it. And five minutes for six people around the, the, uh, the table. And uh, we started getting things uh, done. And pretty soon the meetings were obviously not there at six o'clock in the morning. They were more, you know, a couple minutes in the hallway. I got this. I got that. How about could you do this? And, and those are that was it. Period. It sounds to me like you just took some very effective steps to uh, move past a meeting culture more towards a results culture. Because I found that, uh, you know, I, I, accomplish, I can accomplish more in two minutes with you than I can in an hour with you. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 I, and, and I, it's a crisp two minutes. Right. Right. And, you know, and I have a very small handful of elite clients that I work with. It's usually between three and five. I keep it very small because I get very intimately involved with our elite clients here at the Business Creators Institute. And uh, every week we have a strategy meeting, usually on Monday. Uh, it's scheduled to last up to 30 minutes. If it takes the whole 30 minutes, that's fine. If it takes an hour, that's fine. But that is the one time of the week where like they can collect all their little questions of non-urgency or all the things they'd like to brainstorm about and bring it to that meeting so we don't have to have constant emails and phone calls back and forth. They can do our thing, we can do our thing. They can do their thing, we can do our thing. But I find that a lot of the effectiveness of those, those top handful of clients is, you know, the old, hey, you got two seconds? And that's where yep. a lot of stuff gets done because, you know, if you, if you need two seconds right now, that means a decision is about to be made or an action is about to be taken. Right. And the, the way the meetings go is set by leadership. It's not if you just have a constant meeting where everybody talks and you listen and you accept that as the standard, then you have accept a lowered standard than you should. Right. If you go in and you say, here's what we're going to do. Here's our meetings. We're going to have this, 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 and this, this meeting about this. I mean, you can't eliminate uh, all meetings. There, there right. are communications that are important, uh, uh, but you can focus the meetings. You can make sure that the other people are not holding meetings uh, for hours and keeping keep people uh, from from doing their jobs and what have you. Uh, so it, it is a. It's like anything else. If you walk by a piece of paper on the floor and you don't pick it up, you've established a standard that is perhaps not the right one. So do things, demonstrate yourself how things should be done so that other people can say, oh, well, that's the way he likes to do it or, or she. You know, that, that, and I think that in some ways that speaks to an integrity issue as well. Uh, during my last year of working for a company before I became full-time in the entrepreneurial world, uh, because, uh, you know, I had a, a certain function I played in the company where I was dealing with a very specific area of contracting with our network providers. And uh, there was this quarterly, I can't remember the name of the meeting, but it had the word ops in the title, operations. And you had this room full of 35 people that were all required to submit their findings in advance, which I duly did. And then you had to be there to read them off. And it's like, I have to sit in this meeting for an hour and 45 minutes, and then at like an hour and 20 
they finally get to me and my and nobody ever had any questions for me because my report was so straightforward and it was such a bread and butter type thing that it's like I wasted an hour 45 minutes of my time just being there so my boss's boss and that's a conversation for another day uh got a report that I had been nodding off falling asleep in the meeting and how and how it uh, made her department look and all that and I said well, yeah, because you're wasting an hour and 45 minutes of my time. I could have been doing this stuff instead of not even talking about it. So if you're looking for an apology for being bored and feeling my time was wasted, I don't think I'm the one that's owed an, I don't think I'm the one that owes an apology here. Now, I had a little bit of short timers disease by that time. I'll granted, but I looked at that and I thought, this is just an hour and 45 minutes. I mean, leave aside the fact that I was getting paid for it, even though I wasn't doing anything and it was expected that I'd be there and all that, leave all that aside. But I could think of a hundred thousand things that I could have done at work or somewhere else. that would have been a more valuable use of that hour and 45 minutes, including twiddling my thumbs. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I had an experience uh, one time when I, I knew there was a full meeting from eight o'clock in the morning until noontime. Right. And uh, and I knew that I was going to be sitting there, just bored and not contributing and not not getting any value whatsoever else. And so about seven thirty in the morning, I called my boss and said, "I'm calling in well. I, I feel so good today. I am I am not coming in." <laughs> and yeah, at the end of the, he was pretty angry in the beginning. Uh, but when he, when he got there, he said, you know, Dick, he said, I should have called in well, too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, you, you actually did that because we, cause we've all, or at least many of us have heard that story of, you know, we're, all, we're all always calling in sick to work. Why don't we call in well to work for a change? And you actually did it. I actually did it. I went out and played tennis with my wife and had a nice morning and uh, came in after lunch and got things done. Now, You've somehow managed to survive. You, you I mean you've you've gotten by. I don't know how you're doing it, but somehow you're still managing to have a career. You're still managing to have a business, and you're even doing some CEO stuff. And you're managing to do that even though you didn't attend that meeting. Absolutely. <laughs> wow, unbelievable. All right. So I think what you and I have in common is we both draw a lot of lessons from those who go before us and from, and even more so, or at least as much so anyway, from our interactions with real people and real organizations who are looking to make a difference. And I sense that in you, that you have a real empathetic side to you, a side that you know, has strategic empathy and wants to help people and make them feel involved. And I think that you know, sometimes well, when we're coaching people and we're consulting with people, they end up teaching us to a certain degree. I am proud to say in my business that that's true. So, Richard, what are some leadership lessons that you've learned from some of the people you've worked with and some of the organizations where you've been an interim CEO? And uh, what are also, this is a two-part question, that's the first part. And then the second part is, what are some of the leadership lessons that other people can learn from you in turn? Well, I think the, um, and I sincerely believe what uh, you said is true, and, and I've found that uh, to be true throughout my career. You learn in every different circumstance. Uh, you learn from children, you learn from uh, the older people, you learn from uh, some wisdom, you learn from stupidity, you learn from everything. Right. So you, you have to be open like that. And I, you know, the book uh, Freakonomics and Think Like a Freak uh, has some statements about thinking like a child, being open enough to recognize 
the the uh, um, the values of some of these things. So first, in order to be able to benefit and to learn in these circumstances, uh, you really need to shut up and listen. <laughs> and uh, you need to listen with a, a very open uh, thought. It's not, you know, like this company makes uh, uh, packaging for, for fresh uh, table grapes. Uh, but the table grape business is going to be 50 million boxes uh, this year, 51, maybe next year, 49. You know, it's not going to change a lot. And yet I was out in the uh, yard uh, talking to some of the people who drive the trucks. And one of the persons said, you know, I was looking at this farm over here and they have bell peppers. And they have, uh, they could pack those in the same bags and the same boxes as they do grapes. And, you know, here's something that I've got, you know, 10 people here who are trying to think about how we might expand or change our business. And they haven't come up with anything. But here a driver comes up with, uh, you know, gosh, maybe bell peppers. Now, is it right or is it wrong? I don't know. But, gosh, if I listen and pay attention and then go talk to a bell pepper guy about would the, this kind of packaging prolong the shelf life in a grocery store, who knows? I might have a whole new business with the same product that I'm manufacturing today. So you, you learn in every different circumstances. Uh, and, and culture makes a difference. Uh, if you travel around the world, not every culture is American. In fact, uh, uh, in some cases, quite a bit uh, different. If you were in Japan and you just start talking, everybody's just going to nod their head and say yes. Uh, so you, you can't just talk about everything. Listen, active listening. Uh, and get out of your office. The other part of it is don't uh, accept everything that you hear as uh, something you're supposed to rely on. Right. You do need to do your own homework. You, you do need to, uh, you're not an island and you don't want to be there being, uh, you know, fed the candy and, and uh, not paying any attention. You need to form your own, you can make your impressions, make your own judgment calls. Uh, when somebody's not being entirely above board, uh, you will know it. I mean, politics start at the top. If you allow those kinds of stories about uh, people aren't, this guy isn't doing a good job or this guy goes to sleep or whatever it is, uh, then you create an environment that uh, is not good for anybody. So do your own homework. Uh, the other is think big. Uh, if you don't think big, then gosh, you're not going to, uh, you know, actually uh, um, um, go long term. I mean, you'll, you'll encounter resistance from people saying, oh, we've tried that, never works, and all this other stuff. But think big. And that way you're more, much more open to a broader range of uh, suggestions and uh, stuff. Otherwise, the firm's DNA has been set in place for quite a long time. And thinking big means thinking of the long-term ramifications. Uh, I mean, uh, a quick fix, uh, 10% cut in the travel budget or advertising expenses only lasts a short period of time. And then what? And the likelihood those expenditures are going to come back and even increase means that you were thinking small and you did save a little bit for a little bit of time, but you didn't do any real value. Uh, So think big, listen, have fun. Have fun is important. I love that. I love that. I mean, because is, is, um, I'm going to paraphrase Jack Welch. Uh, I think he said something like, 
have fun in business. It's not a serious ass thing or something along those lines. But I remember seeing the clip and he got rousing applause for that. It's like, why can't we have some fun with this stuff? Why can't right. you, why can't you do some things that are enjoyable? Why can't you have some pride in the work you do, whether you're an entrepreneur and it's your own business or whether you're a contractor for somebody or whether you're an employee, why can't you feel that you've done something good? Why can't you feel that your work is valuable? And if you find yourself in a position where you know, you're, it's, it's a matter of your integrity, where you feel like this is something that's just outside your integrity or outside your belief system, then find something else to do. Uh, if you're working, start a business. If you don't like business, go back and get another job. There's, I mean, the reason there are jobs is because there's work to be done, is how I look at it. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's how I look at it. And some people were intended to have jobs, and they thrive within those parameters. So give everybody the opportunity to do that is how I look at it. Uh, one of the challenges that we face here on the entrepreneurial side is establishing thought leadership and being the out-in-front person. Uh, you know, somebody asked me once, and I'm going to bring this up because I think it may be in some way relevant. You'll tell me if I'm right or I'm wrong about this. Uh, they said, you know, in light of all this whole thing about how they think we might be able to eventually establish colonies on Mars and such, and they said, let's say that we were able to uh, found a country on Mars that was of, by, and for entrepreneurs. As president, what would you do? And I said, I wouldn't be president. I don't want to be president. I want to be the person who controls the process by which the president is selected. Because presidents will come and go, and representatives will come and go. The power won't. Uh, right. You know, if it were a small enough country where everybody could be in one room and raise their hands, you don't need your president. Right. Uh, right. And you need a facilitator. Democracy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You need a facilitator. In fact, we, we need smaller government uh, in a lot of different countries, including the, uh, the U.S. Governments don't don't do, uh, you know, when they get involved in commerce and what have you, they're not very successful. So I would say with entrepreneurial country that, um, you know, those guys, what they need is support resources, uh, supply chain, uh, the things that can help them to be successful with what they're, they're doing. The other part about get a job, uh, I tell people, particularly as they get out of college or out of school, uh, or their first job, hire a boss, find somebody that you like who is enthusiastic about what he or she are doing and will take the time to bring you along with them. Uh, and my other comment is that from age 21 until the technical retirement age of like 65, you're going to spend 70,000 hours working, doing something. Oh my gosh. If I'm going to spend 70,000 hours doing something, I'd like to be doing something that I like to do, that I'm passionate about, uh, with people that I really like to work with, in a geography that I really like to live. Why would I waste 70,000 hours of my life doing something I don't want to do? Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and there are folks who will sometimes react to something like that and saying, well, it's, it'll be so hard for me to get a new job. It'd be so hard for me to start a business because I have a family, I have debts, I have obligations, and it would take me three years to get there. So why bother? And I say, well, if you start today, it's going to take you three years, correct? If you wait till tomorrow, it's still going to take you three years. But if you start today, Tomorrow, it's only going to take you two years and 364 days. Sounds to me like you should start today. So 
So granted, it'll take you three years, but uh, three years is a significant portion of those 70,000 hours. I agree, and you have a different perspective if you're 62 years old than if you're 20. Right. Even if you're 20 and you fall down and somebody throws you out of your job because you didn't show up, you called in well or whatever, uh, what the heck? You know, you, you didn't belong there in the first place. But if you are, you know, 62, then uh, you have a family, you have other issues, and, and uh, your balance is a little different. And in between, you will, you will be forced to make choices. And uh, they should be good choices. They should be ones that you share with family and friends and educated choices. But ultimately, do something that you're passionate about, that you're good at, that you have the skill sets, the interests, and have fun. Have fun. Yeah. And I, and I think that that is a really a great lesson for everybody listening today as we wrap up here in the last few minutes is, you know, do something that is, it's going to be fun. It's going to be within your integrity. And what I really admire about you, Richard, just, you know, from having read about you and studied you before we brought you onto the show today, and also just in the 50-some uh, minutes I've had to sit down with you and get to know you a little bit better, along with my audience, is... I just I sense that you're somebody who has found fun in your life and fun in business. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's not golf. Believe me, it's 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 working with people, it's teaching people, it's being taught, it's being in learning experiences, and the other thing is creating the environment where people can be successful. I mean, punishing failure or or blame creates an atmosphere that uh, you know is just is sad. Right. Uh, you know, we, we don't blame people. If they're trying hard, uh, everybody should be able to fail you. It's part of success. So, right. uh, it, it, you know, create an environment or work an environment where you can do the things that you want to do, bring your value to the table, and have fun. Yeah. I stumbled into something a lot, uh, pretty early in my entrepreneurial career, early on when I had clients. And I remember being in the workspace. Unfortunately, I worked for a company that for its many good qualities, because it had a lot of great qualities and it was a great place to work. They had a real big blame game culture. And anytime anything went wrong, there was an investigation and yes, meetings about where, where do we assign blame? And oh, it's not blame, it's responsibility. And when I got into the entrepreneurial world, I was working on a marketing project and let's just say I goofed something up real bad because it can happen to anybody, right? And, uh, right. And, uh, I, and the client was still somewhat in that line of thinking of, well, we need to study this and find out what went wrong and put in corrective action. And I was just you know, pretty much nonchalant about the whole thing. Because, and, they, and they said, well, well, Adam, don't you take responsibility for your actions? I said, absolutely. I'm taking, I'm taking responsibility for creating the opportunity out of this. Okay. It's, what, it's what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, as I said to that client at the time, and I've repeated this a thousand times, is never let a good mistake go to waste. No, absolutely. You know, I I went into a company, you just reminded me of some of the fun. You got to have fun. Uh, I went into a company that really had a blame culture. Yeah. And about the second or third time where we had this blaming thing going on, uh, I got a friend in in the uh, uh, t shirt business. He got me some. T-shirts, green T-shirts with a a big lettering on the front of it that said Scapegoats Incorporated, <laughs> and on the back of the on the back of it we had a big colorful target with a bullseye with an arrow in it, and I gave one out to everybody, and I said think about this, wear them the next time 
that uh, we have a meeting, and let's talk about what value there is in figuring out who the heck's a scapegoat if we're all supposed to be in charge of making this the great environment, <laughs> the best place to work. So that was fun. I love it. I love it. And I think that's the perfect time for us to wrap up here. So uh, first of all, uh, my appreciation, uh, Richard Lendenmuth, thank you so much for being with us today, first off. And what I'd like to do here is turn over the floor to you for just one minute and share with our business creators who may be on the edge of their seats looking to take this to another level. Uh, how do you help business creators win at the game of business and marketing? Well, it's fun. I mean, we're, first of all, we have a, a nice association called the Interim uh, Association of Interim Executives. Okay. You can Google it and, and find us. And uh, it's a small group, but we all have uh, at least two or three uh, gigs where we've been very successful at the interim. Uh, some of us, this for me is my 23rd. Uh, so we, we have been doing this for a while, and we are good resources, easy to talk with. We're, you know, we're wig. We are what you see is what you get. Right. And uh, and we're very available for uh, people to, you know, we, we will do an assessment of a company. We will help people. Uh, we will, uh, if somebody has a company that they're in trouble with and, and they it's a client of theirs, we'll be happy to come in and not supplant that person, but be a, a team support for them or team lead, wherever the association makes. Uh, and, you know, most of us have written books. Uh, one of us, uh, the book on corporate turnarounds is the basis for the certified turnaround professional in the United States. Um, and, and we have fun. We, we are very easy to contact, associate with, talk about opportunities, big or small. Uh, you know, we, we generally will uh, uh, spend uh, time on almost any size organization. Right. Uh, but, it, again, it's time and money. If we're going to spend a lot of time, then it's going to be a little bit bigger organization that can afford the kind of time we would spend. But nevertheless, we're happy to, uh, to do that. Fantastic, fantastic. So uh, just a reminder to everybody uh, listening that on Business Creators Radio Show, all of our guest experts have profiles on our website where, in, especially in the case of Richard, you can find his website and you can find his social media and you can connect with him in a way that makes most sense to you. So once again, Richard Lindenmuth, thank you so much. It's been an honor and an education. Thank you, Adam. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where we help you win at the game of business.